Hey, church, I forgot how to be a pastor today sometime along the line. No, anyway, welcome, church. Uh, I know this is a little strange, a little difficult, because we're used to all being together when we worship, but I think it's important we remember uh, that our worship takes place here. And it's important that all of us as a church, and I mean a body of Christ, still has a spirit of worship and still is open to hear God's instruction today. And I just, I believe that's going to happen. So if you would, let's pray real quick, then we'll begin. Lord, we thank you so much for letting us gather, even though, Lord, we have to gather in our homes. Uh, we just thank you that you've given us the technology to be able to reach each other and to still be able to share your word with many people at one time. Uh, God, we just pray that today you would clear our minds of all the things that have us nervous and have us a little shaken, uh, and let us put our hope and our confidence in you. Let us draw our peace from you. Uh, God, speak to these people today through your word. We know, God, you're the preacher and I'm the mouthpiece. We just pray, God, that we would hear your word and that it would change us and draw us closer to you. We thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Now, today we're going to actually start the book of 1 Kings. Now, uh, we did, we've done in the past, we did these three sermons that were kind of covering briefly the life of David. Uh, and we just want to kind of let you know who he was and what he was about, because they do mention him several times in this book. But today we were actually starting the series itself, and we've called that series Kings. Uh, now, the funny thing about First and Second Kings, because hopefully Lord willing we'll be covering both of those, is they actually started as one book. But the Septuagint separated them into two parts. Now, the Septuagint is just the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, right? Now, it was made for Greek-speaking Jews that were in Egypt in the 2nd and 3rd centuries B.C., right? Now, the English title, Kings, actually came from Jerome's Vulgate, which was the Latin Bible, uh, and no one actually, actually knows the author of Kings. No, one, no one's ever actually been able to nail that down. But uh, there have been some suggestions. Some people think it was Ezra. Some think it was Ezekiel. Uh, some say Jeremiah, and those are, those are all possible authors, and those, there's convincing arguments for all of them, uh, but there's just no real proof, so we don't really know who wrote this, but we do, and most historians agree, uh, believe that this was written by one author. Now, we know that the time frame was around 971 B.C., so I want you to remember this is about a thousand years before Jesus, so about a thousand years before Jesus. Now, this book actually begins in the last days of King David's life. Okay, so he's in, the, in the, the final days on this earth, right? Now, there are so many historical and life lessons that we can take from chapter 1. And this is just a few of them I'm going to mention. Chapter 1 reveals uh, that David wasn't that good of a father and that he had consequences because of that. It also reveals that uh, God values marriage and created man to have only one wife. Uh, and that's just a couple of the many, many messages that we're going to find just in chapter 1. Uh, but the title of today's message is Reaping and Sowing. Right? And, and what we're going to see is that you know, God has warned man from creation that our actions do have consequences. So let's just jump right in. First uh, Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So a servant said to him, uh, Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king, and let her attend the king and become his nurse, and let her lie in your bosom that my lord the king may keep warm. I know, just stick with me on this one. I know that sounds strange. Verse 3, so they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not cohabit with her. Now, David must have had some circulation issues here because he just couldn't stay warm. So what they did was they went out and found a beautiful young woman to serve him as basically a hospice nurse and... 
a human electric blanket. I mean, that's basically what it was, a human electric blanket. She was there to keep him warm and, and, to, and to be maybe his nurse. Now, the Hebrew word they used here in verse 4 is kind of interesting. It's cohabit, and it actually means that they were not intimate. This was not an intimate relationship. This wasn't David being a perverted old man. Okay, he, she was literally just his caregiver, his nurse, and uh, a warm body to keep him warm because he couldn't stay warm. Now, believe it or not, there's been some, some ancient writings that have proven this isn't unusual. Uh, they, this happened quite often around that time frame. Um, obviously, it's not happening, happening now, but I mean, this was something pretty, pretty normal, so it wasn't even too far out of the norm. Now, here's the thing that you're going to notice about these last days of David. This should have been David's peaceful years. This should have been his golden years. Things should have been going really well for him right now. He should have been at peace, and things should have been quiet, and he should have been just enjoying his family. But that just wasn't the case. And there's a passage in Galatians that tells us why that wasn't the case. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is uh, not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now, if you remember in those three sermons we did to kind of, you know, get you you acquainted with David, we found that in the last message, there was a little bit of a change in David. It seems that David may have let his power and his position go to his head because he became distracted from God. And when he should have been at war, he stayed home. uh, And he saw a beautiful woman, and one thing led to another. And it ended up with him committing adultery with another man's wife and then having that man and other men killed to cover it up. So, I mean, it was a pretty serious sin. David had kind of drifted from God. Now, when the prophet Nathan pointed out his sin to him, he also gave him a warning. 2 Samuel 12.10. It says, now, now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, what that meant was, Nathan was saying, listen, God forgives you. Because David was truly remorseful when he heard, uh, when he came back to his senses and realized how far he'd fallen. And Nathan was saying, listen, God forgives you. But know this, you're going to reap what you sow. And here that, here's how that's going to happen. The sword is never going to leave your home. And what that meant was that you're going to have a lot of problems in the future that are going to come right out of your own family. Now, I didn't have time to cover all these things, but if you study the entire life of David, after this point, there was a lot of things that went wrong. Okay, He had one son that, that ended up exiling him from his own kingdom. Right, He had another son that raped his sister. Uh, and that's just a few. I mean, he had a lot of problems with these sons. But the son that's troubling him in this chapter is something totally different. So let's take a look at this. First Kings chapter 1, starting in verse 5. It says, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, uh, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. He had conferred with Joab. Now remember, Joab was the head of David's army. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zerah, uh, and with Abathar, the priest, and uh, following Adonijah, they helped him. So Solomon was Adonijah's older brother, and he was supposed to secede David to the throne. And that was pretty well known within the kingdom. But David was really ill. I mean, it was his last days. And right before he dies, David's still alive at this point. Adonijah decides, you know what? I don't want Solomon to be king. I'm just going to appoint myself king. And what's my dad going to do about it? I mean, he's lying sick, about to die. What's he going to do about it? 
right? So he convinces some of David's highest officials to kind of go in cahoots with him and help him pull this off. Now, I've often wondered, you know, these officials like Joab were there when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, They were there when they saw what David did by having Uriah and the men with him sent to the front lines where they would surely be killed. So I just have to wonder if possibly these officials had lost respect for David. Maybe that's the reason they were willing to go in cahoots with his son. I mean, I don't know, but I know they probably lost respect for him. But either way, they decided to kind of stand against David and allow the son who wasn't supposed to be king, Adonijah, to become king. Now, why would he do this? Why would Adonijah be bold enough to defy David? Now, this is where it gets interesting, because there's really a two-part answer to this question, and it may sound kind of harsh. Okay, the first reason he didn't have a problem standing against David was David was a terrible father. Okay, he had many wives, which he shouldn't have. He had many sons, many daughters, and he just wasn't a good father. And he literally, in our terms, spoiled them rotten. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, it says, His father had never crossed him at any time, listen to this, by asking, Why have you done so? Now, verse 6 is just a roundabout way of saying he never disciplined him. He just let him do whatever he wanted. So he spoiled the kid rotten. That's the first reason that he felt bold enough to stand against David. Now, the second reason is going to take us kind of on a... On a, on a uh, a trip back to Matthew, because the second reason was Adonijah was the, project, uh, was the product of Haggith, who was one of the wives that David had, one of many wives that David had. Now, have you ever wondered why, and I know I used to wonder this all the time, why there were so many men, godly men, men like, like Moses, Abraham, David, and worst of all, Solomon, in the Bible, why did they take so many wives? Why did they do that? And I've had a lot of people ask me, did God feel differently about it then? Maybe God was okay with it then. I've even heard people say, well, maybe it was because God wanted to populate the earth quicker. And I'm like, no, we're past that point. But a lot of people have asked me that. They said, did God feel different about this then? And the answer is no. God always intended for man to only have one wife. And the reason is God knew that no man could really handle more than one wife. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. But God didn't want man to have more than one wife. That was never his intention, right? So every man who committed polygamy, which is having more than one wife, it was a sin. It was a sin for Moses. It was a sin for David, right? All those men, that was sin to them. They should not have done that. And one glaring similarity you see in the lives of all those men is that most of their problems came from the children of wives they never should have had. Okay, this is reaping and sowing at its finest. Right? They were supposed to have one wife, and the other wives and all the children that came from them were not a part of the plan originally, and so a lot of their problems came from that, so they brought it on themselves. Now, to better understand this, we're going to have to jump back to Matthew 19, like I said. Now, this might take a little bit, but, I mean, like, what are you doing? You're sitting there in your pajamas eating Fritos. You'll be all right. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. It says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, listen, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for man to divorce his wife, notice this, listen, for any reason at all, okay? Now, first off, the Pharisees were always looking for something to accuse Jesus of. They couldn't stand him. People loved him and were starting to follow him, and they wanted him dead, imprisoned. They wanted him out of the way. So they were always looking for some way to trip him up or accuse him so that they could prosecute him. See, they mistakenly thought they could actually trap Jesus by using the law of Moses, 
basically the word of God. They thought they could trap him with the word of God. What they didn't realize at that time was that Jesus was God on earth. He was all God and all man. He was the one who actually gave Moses that law. He had a perfect understanding of that law. Now, I love how masterfully Jesus handles this question. Look at this, Matthew 19, 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. Not wives, his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So what Jesus did was he basically answered their question just by quoting Scripture right back to him. He just quoted it right back to him. Because listen, he knew that the Scriptures were something they wouldn't dare deny. But there's something else he knew. Jesus also knew that they had almost made Moses a godlike figure to them. Right? And they believed that if Moses said it, it was inspired. If Moses did it, it was God's will. You know, when you study the life of Moses, you'll see that that's just not the case, but that's the way they felt. Look at this, Matthew 19, 7. They said to him, why then did Moses... Now, if you're following along in your Bible, this is a great time to circle or underscore this word. Uh, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Notice they said command, right? They used that word. Why did Moses command this, right? So Jesus just reminds them, hey, I think you're misrepresenting the words of Moses. Look at this, Matthew 19, 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, remember that, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted. You see the difference in the language? They said Moses commanded him to do this. Jesus said he permitted you to divorce your wives. And this is really important. He permitted you to divorce your wives but from the beginning, it has not been this way. Okay? So he's saying, what Moses permitted was never supposed to be. Verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, in the Greek, that's the word porneia, where we get the word pornography from, and it should have been translated here, except for sexual immorality. But except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. So honestly, I, it's kind of funny, but Jesus actually kind of threw Moses under the proverbial bus here. I mean, he really did, right? You see, Moses actually meant well by permitting them to divorce because he was just trying to choose the lesser of two evils. Remember that Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Well, back in the days of Moses, the law was very clear about divorce like the word of God still is today. And when you married someone, you were supposed to stay with them. You know that through, you know, sickness and health, all that, you know, God meant that. You were supposed to stay with them, right? And the only reason he said that they could divorce, he didn't say they had to, but the only reason they could divorce was for sexual immorality or infidelity, right? Now, history shows us that the men at that time who were unhappy with their wife didn't want to break the law. Now, here's where the hypocrisy starts to come in. They didn't want to be seen as, as violating the law, so here's what they started doing. They started sleeping around and having affairs with other women because they weren't happy. And even worse than that, they started physically and mentally abusing their wives. History teaches us it was rampant at that time. Some were even kind of creating harems 
so that they could have as many women as they wanted, but then they could say, hey, well, I never divorced her. I mean, she's still my wife legally. I've never divorced her. So they started creating these harems and were neglecting their wives. So basically, they had become so hard of heart and so religious, and I say religious because they were worried about breaking a law, but committed all these other sins, and yet felt righteous because they didn't break that one law about divorce. And the worst thing is, is some historians believe that they were even murdering their first wife so that they could say, well, she's gone. Now I can marry another one. I didn't break the divorce rule. So they were really, I mean, really hard of heart. And they were doing very underhanded, evil, sinful things. That's why Jesus said their hearts were hardened. So Moses looks at all this and he goes, what is wrong with you guys? What are you doing? Why are you beating your wives? Why are you physically, mentally abusing your wives? You know, some historians, and this kind of shocked me, some historians say that they even got involved in, in abusing drugs, right? That they started uh, struggling with substance abuse. I mean, they had gotten so wild. So he's like, what are you guys doing? You guys are losing your mind. You're beating your wives. You're killing your wives, right? You're creating these harems. You're, you're you know, using drugs. What is the problem here? He said, listen, don't do this to these women. See, Moses didn't want these women to become victims, he actually meant well. He was thinking about the women. So he said, listen, don't do this. Here's what, here's what you can do. Here's what you can do. Pretty much you can divorce your wife for any reason. If it'll keep you from beating them, if it'll keep you from cheating on them, if it'll keep you from creating harems, if it'll keep you from murdering them, if it'll keep you from doing all these evil things, fine, then just, then just give them a certificate of divorce and send them away. At least that way they can have a life and they won't be treated like an animal. All right, so he just allowed them to do that because he was trying to speak out for the victims. I mean, his heart was in the right place, but he just didn't do things the way God wanted him to because Moses forgot something. You never change God's word to suit the situation. What needs to happen is the heart needs to change. What he should have done was he should have started teaching these men better and trying to get, get their hearts turned back to God. Because that is the only way he was really going to solve it. This wasn't going to solve anything. But he meant well. I mean, he, he really did. He meant well. But that's why Jesus said, kind of throwing Moses under the bus, he said, listen, Moses didn't command it. He permitted it. But know this. From the beginning, it has not been this way. God never intended. This is what Jesus was saying. God never intended for man to have more than one wife. Now listen, if you'll notice, even today, despite the fact that God will forgive divorce, Everyone involved in a divorce, even to this day, there are problems that result from it. There are difficulties and struggles for everyone who's involved in it. Now, it's not the unforgivable sin, and God can forgive someone uh, for a, you know, a divorce that occurred for the wrong reason, and, and God can bless their lives as they move on as long as they're truly repentant. But here's the thing. There's still those difficulties, you know, the weird exchange at holidays and always having to deal with them. The biggest lie the devil ever told was, hey, if you divorce them, we never have to deal with them again. Yeah, talk to anyone who's divorced and see if that's actually true. Right? So it was difficult, still is difficult. So back to David. So David was reaping and sowing in two ways. He was reaping and sowing because first he didn't discipline Adonijah, and he was an entitled, entitled spoiled little brat who should have been bent over David's knee and had his butt fanned, right? But he didn't do that. So he was an entitled spoiled little brat. Anybody ever met that kid? who the parents, everything they do, they act like it's okay. And they go, oh, isn't that cute? He just broke your window. I'm like, no, it's not cute. I wish you would spank him. You know what I mean? 
eventually they will have trouble with that kid. This was one of the reasons he was reaping, because he didn't discipline his kid. And the second reason was Adonijah was a son that David shouldn't have had from Haggith, the wife he shouldn't have had. That's another reason he was reaping and sowing this. He kind of brought this on himself. This is why he wasn't able to enjoy his latter days. Okay, now let's jump back in here. So now, Adonijah knew who was faithful to David and who wasn't. So he picked the people he knew he could depend on that weren't that close to David that would follow him, right? And the people he thought would follow David, he didn't invite them. Let's take a look at this. 1 Kings chapter 1, starting in verse 8. It says, But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, uh, Nathan the son of the prophet Shimei, Re, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings uh, by the stone of Zoeth, uh, which is beside Enrogel. He, I'm going through those names really fast because I don't know if I can pronounce them. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, and he invited all his brothers, uh, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, and Solomon, his brother. So what's going on now is Adonijah hoped that in my opinion, I think he was hoping that David would just die before he found out. He knew he was old. He knew he had circulatory issues. I mean, he had to have someone lay with him to keep warm. He couldn't even regulate his own temperature. So he's probably thinking, this is the perfect time to strike, right? Our leader is weak and sick, and more than likely before he hears about it, he'll die. And when he does hear about it, what's he going to do? I mean, he's weak and sick. There's not a whole lot he can do. So that's why I think he became so bold. And decided to attack at that moment and to try to, you know, execute his treason. Because he's hoping David would die or couldn't do anything about it. It's kind of funny because the enemy still works this way. He still tries to attack us when he thinks we're the weakest. Right? He still tries to bring that fear and anxiety on us and, and moments of uncertainty when he thinks we're weakened and he thinks our faith is weakened. Right? That's why we have to remember, no matter what we face... God is still in charge. He's still in charge. Like the times we live in right now. I mean, the media has people terrified, right? Everyone's afraid to open their windows. Now, listen, some of this is justified, and, and I'm telling you that you should, you know, follow the guidelines. But here's the truth of the matter. Trust me about this. There's no virus that's going to destroy God's people. There's no illness that's going to change God's plan. God is still 100% in charge. He has not been taken by surprise here, right? And he is still going to do what's best for his people, just like he had always done. And Adonijah was about to find something out that he was about to find out that even though David was old, even though he was sick, even though, you know, he couldn't regulate his own body temperature and had to suffer through having this beautiful young woman lay with him, had to suffer through that treatment, even though he was in that position, God still had his back, right? Now let's move on. Now this is a lot of reading. 1 Kings 1.11. It says, Then Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? So now, come, please let me give you counsel and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. See, at that time, especially when there were rival factions within a family you know, competing for the throne, the one that actually got the throne would usually kill the others. That way he wouldn't have to worry about him plotting to steal his throne. He would normally just kill him, and he would have certainly killed Bathsheba and Solomon. Verse 13. 
Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my, uh, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after and confirm your words. So here was their plan. They were going to point out his treachery, Adonijah's treachery to David. But they knew that if they both said it, and they both confirmed it, David might actually act quicker, right? So they planned for one person to go in and the other one to come in like, they ne- you know, like it was two totally different occurrences, like it happened just you know, out of the blue. Oh, I'm sorry, you're talking to your wife. Oh, by the way, I, I want to tell you what she's talking about, right? So they, they set it up to where two people were coming in to tell them the same thing. Let's see, they put this into action. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 15. It says, So Bathsheba went into the king in the bedroom, uh, now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was there ministering to the king. When I read that, I thought, that had to be awkward. You know, you walk in, and there's your husband lying with a beautiful young virgin, and he's going, oh, don't worry, she's just here to keep me warm. <laughs> I mean, it was legitimate, but still had to be weird. Verse 16, then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, uh, and the king said, what do you wish? She said to him, my lord, you swore to your maidservant by the lord your God, saying, surely... Your son Solomon shall be the king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Now behold, Adonijah is king, and now, my lord the king, you do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatling and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, and Abathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon your servant. As for you now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come about as soon as my lord the king sleeps. Remember, the Hebrews didn't like the word death. They used the word sleep uh, in, in, in place of it. So this is talking about when he died. It says, uh, as my lord the king dies or sleeps uh, with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. Behold, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet come in. Now, they think this is funny because this is supposed to look random. She's talking to him about, you know, how his son has been betraying him. And right in the middle of it, in comes, you know, Nathan the prophet about to tell the same story. Uh, Verse 22, behold, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. They told the king, saying, uh, here's Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Then Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall be king after me and shall sit on my throne? Now he knew he didn't say that, right? He was just trying to you know, make sure that David was focused. Verse 25, For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatland and sheep in abundance and has invited the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abathar the priest, and behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and they say, Long live king Adonijah. But me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your son Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been done by my lord the king? He knew it wasn't done by my lord the king. He knew that. But he just wanted to act like, you know, innocent about the whole thing. He didn't want them to know they devised this plan. Uh, Has this thing been done by my lord the king? And have you not shown to your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. So one thing time has taught us is that no one can undermine God's will. Now, Adonijah is about to find that out. But even when David was physically incapable, or at least it seemed he was, God was still with him. 
Now, from the outside, people may not have been able to see that because he was old and feeble, and, and, and like we said many times, he couldn't even regulate his own body temperature. He, it was obvious he was in his last days, but God was still with him no matter what it looked like. And what Adonijah is about to find out is it's not about how things appear, it's about how things are. It doesn't matter how desperate the world appears, here's how things are. This is still a world under God's control. God is still the one who makes the decisions, and God will always be faithful to his people. And even when, when God's people seem to be in a weakened state, even when the world is against us, we have to realize that God is still with us, right? God was still able to give David wisdom, was still able to give David authority, was still able to make him act wisely, and that's what was about to happen. See, Adonai believed that David's circumstances was going to determine this outcome. But next week, we're going to see that no matter what, God is the one who determines the outcome. Always has been and always will be. Now, we'll finish this next week, but we can learn a lot from David's situation because we're living in uncertain times, as I said at the beginning of the message. We're living in very uncertain times. There's people out there, you know, selling panic and selling fear to everyone. People are rushing to stores and hoarding, and, and they're so afraid that, that this is the end of the world. Let me make you a promise. This is not the end of the world. This is not the end of the world, and God is still in charge, and God will still keep his promises to his people. Don't allow your circumstances to define your faith. God is the one who decides our fate. If you've trusted him, he's promised to care for you, and he's promised to bring you home with him when the time is right. God is still in charge, just like David was still in charge and God was still with him at this time, even though it looked uncertain. Just always remember, when things seem most hopeless, that's when God always steps in and restores hope. Sometimes you learn more about how big God is when everything seems dire around you. And I love it when you see God step up and you see the light come on in people's eyes and they realize, oh my gosh, we may not have been in control during this situation, but he always was, and he still is. So just remember that. Listen, we're going to face some difficult weeks ahead, but God's still in control. And trust me, this didn't catch him by surprise. And he's still going to care for you. He's still going to keep his promises to you. And as we'll see next week, he's still going to give you the victories that he promised. Now, I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you would to please bow your heads with me and we'll pray. God, I thank you so much for everything you do. But I thank you especially that you loved us so much that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believed could have eternal life. You knew, God, we weren't good enough. You knew that we would never be perfect. You knew that we would let you down. And you knew apart from your son, we had no hope. So you sent your son to die on our behalf, and we thank you for that. Lord, now if there's someone here who hasn't trusted him or someone listening who hasn't trusted him, we just pray, God, that whatever is holding them back, just move it out of their mind. No doubt, Lord, right now there's so many fears, there's so many uncertainties that the enemy's using to try to make you appear weak. But God, we know that when everything around us is shaken and when everything around us is uncertain, one thing we can always believe, and that is you are God. You're the creator of all things. You're always in charge, and you'll always be there for us. Lord, just clear their mind and let them trust in your promise that if they trust Jesus as the giver of eternal life for themselves, your word promises they'll have eternal life. And if they make that decision, God, we just pray they reach out to us or reach out to uh, a good Christian friend or organization near them. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, God, we need to be the ones that show your strength right now. Empower us, Lord. Don't let us be sidetracked by the news and social media. Don't let the fear mongers make us afraid. Remind us through your word and through everyday circumstances, God, that you are still the king. You are still in control. Your plan 
is still as it always was, and we will still spend eternity with you. God, give us the boldness to show your love and kindness to everyone, especially during this time. We just thank you, God, for all that you do for us. We pray that you would give us strength in the weeks to come. Let us live what we profess, God, and let us use this time to be a time when we draw others to you. We just thank you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.